Welcome to Clothe with the Sun, our daily gospel reading and meditation. I am James Thomas. Today is Saturday, March 25th, 2023, the Feast of the Incarnation, otherwise known as the Annunciation to Mary. Let us proceed with our gospel reading. Today, rightly so, is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at what was said, and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So I don't know if anybody else gets goosebumps when you hear that reading, but this is this is what it's all about right here. This reading is for the Incarnation. It's, of course, the Feast of the Incarnation, but this is for Christianity in general. There are many different theories about when the church was officially founded. Some say it was Pentecost because the Holy Spirit was given in the fullness of the Spirit to the Apostles. Some say it was Jesus' death on the cross, in which he paid the price for our sins. Some say it was his resurrection, conquering sin and death. But there are many who say the church was founded at this moment in which Mary conceived of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, because this is the moment that God and man come together. That's what incarnation means. Incar means in flesh. God takes on human flesh. As I had said before, there are the, the the hardest time to preach is when you have a big feast, such as this one, because there's just so much to say. There's so much to say about this reading, and there's so much to say about the feast. I wanted to focus a little bit here on the importance of the incarnation. What does this mean? And when we talk about the church, when we talk about the nature of the church, which one is the true church, etc. When we talk about our own spiritual lives, it's so important that we have at least a basic understanding of the incarnation. There are many heresies in the church, in the history of the church, and there are many people in heresy right now in their beliefs, whether they be Catholic, whether they be Protestant, Christian, people all over the place with their level of commitment, but also their level of understanding. And Almost always, the heresies go back to uh, an incorrect understanding of the Incarnation. 
which leads to then an incorrect understanding of the church, an incorrect understanding of yourself and your own relationship with God. The incarnation means heaven and earth come together in Mary's womb. It happens there first. Heaven and earth come together. God and man come together. God and humanity come together in Mary's womb in the person of that single cell organism that Jesus is when he enters this planet, our realm, and then he grows in Mary's womb, ultimately to be born from her. We say from her as if it's somehow disconnected from Mary, but it's really uh, he's conceived in her and of her. He is born of her. Because he has taken on flesh that is literally Mary's flesh. Mary gives him his humanity. So Mary's role is another thing that's important to focus on here. There's so much we could say. I get so excited talking about this. So the incarnation. When people say this or that about the church, I don't have to go to church. Ah, The church is just a bunch of men. They a bunch of man-made rules. I don't have to confess my sins. Guess what? The church is an incarnation. It's God and man. Well, those bishops and those priests, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Why would I want to go to that with all those horrible people running things? Guess what? It's incarnational. It's God and man. The sacraments are incarnational, and they are meant to make us incarnational, God and man. We are divinized by our baptism and our reception of Holy Communion. In other words, we receive God. We become what we receive yet we still remain what we have already been. When we say that we're made in God's image and likeness, once again, great spiritual writers have talked about this. The Well, there's a lot of different ways we can refer to it, but we say the image has to do with how we are made, but it can be a broken, it is a broken image, a fallen image because of sin, because of original sin, but also because of the sins that we commit every single day. But then the likeness, great spiritual writers have said, is our redeemed self. Because of the image that's placed in us in the beginning, that Jesus is the word through whom all things were made, that he's able then to redeem us. He's able then to transform us. We already have the mark of God upon us from our creation being made in his image, but then we receive the mark of baptism. And now we are in his likeness, meaning now we are men and women filled with grace And of course, as we go through lives, we can empty out that grace, get rid of that grace through our sin and our rejection of his truths, or we can be filled more and more and more with his grace to the degree that we follow him, that we receive him, that we are filled with his word, filled with his love, spending time in prayer. So the incarnation means God became one of us. In other words, he lived a life just like us, except that he didn't commit a sin. As a baby, he cried. He needed his diaper changed. He needed to brush his teeth. He needed to cuddle with his mom. He needed to be carried by his dad. He needed to be taught how to read in his humanity. He needed to work a job. So many things. He lived life among us. He lived as one of us. St. Paul says he emptied himself of his divinity. He did not come to be Superman. 
He came to be just like you and me. And St. Paul goes so far as to say he made himself a slave to the rest of us by dying for us, by suffering so horribly for us. So Jesus took on human flesh. Jesus had feelings and emotions. Very often in the history of theology and even in conversations that I get into about theological topics, people are so quick to say it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what your desires are. You should just do the right thing. Well, this is a false understanding of things. Jesus had feelings. Jesus acted upon his feelings. Jesus had friends. Jesus played games. He probably played sports. There are so many things we could say about the good of our humanity. First, because God made it. And secondly, because God redeemed it. The family being central, so good, so important. The love that exists, human affection, hugs and kisses and cuddles, all really, really important. And they, what do they point to? They point to heaven in which we'll all be one with each other without any flaws. So the bonds that we form in friendship and charity on this earth, they're foreshadowings of heaven. They're getting us ready for heaven. So because of Jesus's incarnation, we can rightly say the body is good. The world is good. It's true. The world is filled with sin. It's true. But Jesus came to redeem the world. He came to redeem this earth. He came to redeem our humanity. He came to redeem your job, your hobbies, your family, the books you like to read. I mean, he's even present in our leisure time, the movies that we're watching, the music that we're listening to, which is why, I mean, it's all the more reason why we need to avoid sin because Jesus is all in it. God is all in it. So therefore, we need to always be transforming it, working towards making it his, making it something that would please him, making it something that would lead us closer to him. But he's in it. One thing I like to say when I counsel people about prayer, people uh, get very, very discouraged because they say, well, I could just get distracted. I can't sit there in a holy hour. I get distracted. I can't sit there and meditate. And one thing I like to say is, you know, what are you doing when you're sitting there? Okay, you get distracted. What does that mean? Okay, instead of meditating upon heaven, you start thinking about a video game you played yesterday. Okay, guess what? Jesus cares about that video game. He wants to hear, what, what is it you like about that video game? What is it about that book you read, that TV show you saw? Sometimes I go see a movie and it stays with me for a couple of days because whatever, the, the special effects, the music, the, the intense acting stays with me. Now I'm in prayer. Now I'm struggling to concentrate on Jesus' passion because I'm thinking about movie scenes. Okay, Jesus wants to be there with you in that seeing that movie, enjoying that movie. What is it in that, that, that speaks to you, speaks to your heart? Jesus, God almighty, God, the father, son, and spirit made you to like certain things, to not like certain things. Our humanity is good. So much of what I'm saying are sentiments that come from theology of the body. Thank God. Pope John Paul wrote the theology of the body. We have yet to really tap into the immense wisdom of these writings. And I keep learning more and more about it, but the only way we're going to turn back from the hedonism that we have in this day and age is to come to center, to come to balance. If, if we just want to hit people over the head with 
you're a sinner, you're going to hell because you're indulging yourself in this way or that way. You know, it's it's this false, it's, it's actually a heresy to think. Like I say, the heresies exist on the extremes. The balance is in the middle. The balance is where the truth is. Jesus is incarnate, God and man. We are meant to be fully human and in touch with the divine, redeemed by Jesus' love. So we are not called to be angels. We are not called to be devoid of emotion. We are not called to be people that don't have hobbies, that don't like sports, that don't like affection with family and friends and whatever, the joys of life. There's so much joy in this world. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. So it's a heresy to say we're supposed to be like angels. It's wrong for us to come from the opposite end of things and say, you know, you're all just horrible people and, and you know, there's no hope for you, whatever we might say in, in our frustration because people aren't behaving perfectly rightly. Well, guess what? We need to re-evangelize the world. We're in a post-Christian society. And understanding theology of the body and understanding the incarnation will help us to evangelize the world around us. The fact is, when we, and there's so much addictive behavior all throughout our society right now, because ultimately anything we desire is a reflection of our love of God, because God's the source of everything. God made everything, but God reveals himself through the things that he made. So when we talk about human love, there's so much there that's good. It's just, how do we do it? How do we, uh, you know, take part in these things while keeping with in, in line with our human dignity, while doing it in such a way that it goes hand in hand with God's promises for our humanity? God does desire our joy, supernatural joy, and our happiness, happiness in this world. It doesn't mean we're always going to have it, but God does desire that we live this life to the full, that we have the things that we need, that we pursue our desires Of course, yes, we need to be praying and studying our faith so that our sinful desires are not being indulged, but it's just so common. When I talk to friends, when I talk to fellow believers, it's so common for people to go from one extreme to another in terms of how they look at things, just like all the heresies, either denying the divinity of Christ. I mean, I have people in my life right now that say, well, you know, you don't have to make such a big deal out of God and going to mass and all that stuff. You know, Jesus is just a regular guy. He'd be happy to just sit and have a beer with you, right? He'd be happy to just tell some jokes. Well, all right, Jesus was a regular guy, but still there's a time and a place for everything. Is Jesus interested, like I said, in, in knowing about my life and, and being part of it? Sure, but he's also God. He also deserves our worship the very best that we can give him in our worship and in our praise. That means externals, the way we worship with the externals. Are we using whatever, incense, candles, bells? That's all good if it's adding to our worship. The most important thing about our worship is our hearts. Am I giving him my heart? Am I doing good for others out of my love for him? So we need to emphasize the divinity, the transcendence, but also the imminence. There are some people that just will talk as if all humanity is bad. I remember one time, it's just, just one example of many examples I, was, I could give. I was on a trip with a bunch of kids. I was in charge of this trip. And something happened where I got separated from the kids. I got angry. I started yelling at the security guards. Rightly so. I'm responsible for those kids to their parents and just in general. 
Those kids were not safe now wandering on their own because I was held back by security while they were on the other side of the uh, uh, whatever you would call it, the wall that they had set up. So I started expressing, I am very angry. I need to get with my kids. This is ridiculous. What is going on here? And a woman next to me was trying to shut me up. She said, oh, you're not being a good Christian by getting angry like this. You're being a bad example to us all. And I didn't really have time to deal with her, but man, that frustrated me because I thought later, you know, Jesus got angry. Jesus allowed that emotion to vent on a couple occasions. In the Bible, we see him dealing with the Pharisees in anger, calling them names. We see him turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple, venting some anger. Anger is an emotion. It's not evil in and of itself. Yes, could anger become evil? Sure, if we indulge it in a sinful way, but it's an emotion. All of our emotions were made by God, therefore they are good in and of themselves. It's what we do with them. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Anyway, so yes, the incarnation leads us to say, God became one of us so that we could become God. In other words, we receive divination through the sacraments, through our worship. God came to fill us with grace. God came to transform us. God first has to be transformed. He could not die on a cross if he hadn't taken on our humanity. And as I was saying earlier, Mary is so important in all this. Mary doesn't simply give him his flesh. Mary now is his mother. Anybody out there who's a mother listening to this knows a mom is not just somebody who gives your child their flesh and then lets them go into the wild. I mean, heaven forbid, maybe that's happened sometimes in human history. And we hear horrible stories on the news when we watch it at nighttime. But moms are so much more. The love that they give us, the instruction that they give us, the affection, the endless, countless times that they take care of every single one of our needs. And they continue to do that until they're 100 years old, if they live that long, in whatever way they can. Their heart is addicted to their children. Usually, moms are addicted to their kids. Moms, I mean, what would we be without our mothers? They talk to us so much when we couldn't even understand their language yet. But yet that was so important to us to hear their voice. They fed us, often with their own bodies. They clothed us. They changed our diapers. You know how disgusting that is? But it was an act of love repeatedly done over and over. Mary did this for Jesus. So did St. Joseph. He was very much involved in this. Even though he was not a physical parent, even though he did not carry Jesus within him as Mary did, still, he's important. This whole mystery of the incarnation very much includes St. Joseph. So in this reading that we just heard, Mary, really all of her dogmas, we call them the dogmas of Our Lady. There's four dogmas, and then there's all kinds of other things that we believe about her as well. But all of her four dogmas really are contained in seed form in this reading. Her perpetual virginity. People doubt that. People are against us saying that. This has always been, it's been a dogma of the church for many, many centuries, and it has to do I mean, there's a lot of other things that go into it, but this passage where Mary says, how can this be, since I know not man, since I have no relations with a man, as we heard earlier, how can this be? The story is that Mary was intending virginity. How ironic. All other women in Israel 
wanted to have children, as many children as possible, because there's always a chance that their son would be the Messiah. And that would make them the queen, because we all know from Jewish history that it's not the wife of the king that becomes the queen. It's the mother of the king, because the kings had many wives. And so it was the greatest possible honor to be the mother of the Savior. And this was commonly talked about. Perhaps my child will be the Messiah. In Mary's case, there's this tremendous paradox, this tremendous irony. There's so many paradoxes in our faith. Mary knows she's called by Almighty God for something very important, so she intends virginity. She intends total consecration to God. What what an irony. She's the one that's actually going to carry him in her womb. So even though she's betrothed to Joseph, and there's great readings on this from the history of the church, the Proto-Evangelium of James and other places where Mary has appeared and revealed her life story, and Catherine Emmerich and uh, Mary of Agreda and some of these other people that Mary has revealed herself to. When Mary was told she had to marry Joseph, she submitted to it, but she still intended virginity, which is why she says, how can this be? Why would you say if you're already betrothed in marriage to someone and they say you're going to have a kid, why would you say, oh, how can this be? As if you don't know how it works. Mary says that because she intends virginity. The angel doesn't skip a beat. He says, oh, it's simple. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is your spouse, and this is where the child will come from. The child will be the son of God the Father. So is there, there's the mystery of the Trinity we see right here. The child will be the son of God, the angel says. So Mary's virginity. Mary's immaculate conception is mentioned indirectly here. Hail, full of grace. No one in the Old Testament, not Moses, no, not anyone, Abraham, Noah, no matter how important they were, David, no one is called full of grace because they were all sinners. They were all regular human beings that needed redemption. Mary needs redemption too, but we learn later in our theology and in the history of the church that it was a prevenient grace. The Lord's grace of the cross goes back in time and it applied to Mary. We believe Mary is the immaculate conception conceived without sin so that the angel is able to say, hail full of grace. Jesus needed a perfect mother in order to raise the perfect son. We'll say more about that at another time. But then the assumption comes from that. There's no bodily corruption in Mary because she's full of grace, hence the dogma of the assumption. And also the dogma of Mary being mother of God. The angel is very, very clear. Your child will be the son of God. Your child, he doesn't say it exactly like this, your child will be the second person of the Trinity. We all understand this from reading the Bible and knowing our faith. So this child will be God. This child will be an divine, a divine person, an infinite person, uh, someone who existed from before time began. Yet he will now be born into time. He will come through you, Mary. So for us, we're getting long-winded here. I know, I am long-winded. It is my nature. But just to sum up, what do we take from this mystery? We need to better understand ourselves. We need to better understand the world. We need to take hope. Because God Almighty became one of us so that every little thing about us can be redeemed. All the things that you might dislike about yourself and about the world. Jesus came on this day to redeem all of that. And it's so much better now than it would have been even if we were still in Eden. 
Because in Eden, it's true, there was no sin. We were with God. Humanity was with God. But now humanity becomes divinized. Now humanity is transformed by God because God becomes one of us. It's the ultimate act of humility for God to become one of us. But this just goes to show his great love for us in that he became one of us to transform us. He became one of us to save us. And because of this feast on this very day, now we are destined for greatness. With God, we have everything. We are everything. We are rulers of the world because of him and our union with him. And without him, we have nothing. So I hope everybody celebrates this day, even though we're in Lent, it is a high feast day. So enjoy whatever that means for you. And I'll be back with you tomorrow. God bless you.